0: Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by granting a release to your neighbors and friends. I am going to grant a release to you, says the Lord, a release to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth and those who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me. I will make like the calf when they cut it in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf shall be handed over to their enemies and to those who seek their lives. Their corpses shall become food for the birds of the air and the wild animals of the earth. Can I just say Yikes! That prophecy on the lips of Jeremiah in the 34th chapter of the book that bears his name is chilling and terrifying. What could the leaders of Jerusalem have done to deserve such a condemnation? Oh, they did a lot. A whole lot. And there's quite a story there. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 3.9 The Art of Breaking the Deal King Zedekiah looked around at his council and smiled grimly. We are all in agreement then? he asked. They all indicated their approval with a bobbing of heads. He knew that many of them were not happy about it, but they truly did not have a choice. These were hard times, the hardest the nation had ever faced, and so they needed to be ready to make the tough decisions. Then let it be proclaimed, pronounced the king, that the false prophet Jeremiah who commits treason against the king and against the people by prophesying that the holy city will fall to his majesty's enemy, the king of Babylon, that he shall be confined to the court of the guard so that he cannot disturb the people with his lies. So let it be done. So So let it it be done, echoed the men of the council. As those words faded away, Ismael's, the son of Nethaniah, cleared his throat on the other side of the room. He was by far the wealthiest man in Jerusalem, and spoke for the noble families. Well and wisely done, cousin, he said. You have done the right thing in this crisis, but there is one problem more. Now that the king of Babylon has come and laid siege to our city— We all recognize that the only way that we will survive and retain the goods that Yahweh has given to us is if we stand united against the foe. But, my king, this city is not united. You've done well to remove the voice of that gadfly Jeremiah and to make sure that he cannot foment revolt. But there is more than just the voice of that fool that is dividing this city. We need to do something about the poor folks. They are sullen and ungrateful, and I do not think that we can count on them in a fight. They will behave like the cowards they are when the Babylonians attack. There was a muttering of agreement before Ismael continued. You all know what happened here. The last time the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem, they left everything a complete mess. We were doing all right, of course. We always are, because, well, Yahweh has approved of us. But the poor folk did not do so well. They were filthy and starving. Their children were dying in the streets. The stench, my brothers, the stench, it was awful. But we, the nobles, stepped up. We lent the people food and money so that they could stop inconveniencing us by dying And then, when they showed their lack of quality by failing to pay their debts, we graciously took them to be our slaves and to serve us. But they have no gratitude, and I do not trust that they will sacrifice themselves to save us when it comes to a battle. Most of the men in the room, who were frankly terrified at the prospect of the impending battle, had grown increasingly vocal in their anger as Ismael delivered his diatribe against the slaves. But one man had grown rather thoughtful. His name was Zephaniah, and he was the second priest in the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. The chief priest, Saraiah, might be the one who did all of the ceremonial work that went with his role, but everybody knew that when it came to interpreting the religious law, you had to turn to Zephaniah. His voice was soft when he spoke, but he commanded such authority that everyone listened. I wonder, my lords, if you have ever heard of something called the Law of Jubilee? Ismail blinked. The Jubilee, he said, Isn't that the thing that my slaves keep going on about? Apparently some law that goes all the way back to Moses that required debts to be forgiven, slaves to be freed, and I think even land to be returned to its original owners every 50 years or so? Don't tell me that that ridiculous law is actually part of the ancient texts. Well, replied the priests, I do not know where your slaves got that idea from. I certainly promise that it wasn't from anybody in the temple because it is something that we decided not to talk about, but it is actually there among the laws. My brothers, I would not normally inconvenience you by bringing up such a thing, but these are clearly not normal times, and there may be an opportunity to use this ancient law and your slaves' faith in it, to our advantage. The royal council debated a very long time that afternoon, but in the end they chose to adopt Zephaniah's proposal. The king would proclaim a year of jubilee, and have the ram's horns sounded throughout the city and the nobles would vow to release their slaves as well as forgive the debts that had enslaved them in the first place. This had been a hard sell for the nobles, of course, but the priest won them over in the end by explaining to them what the potential upsides and downsides were. "'Listen, lords,' he said, "'what is the worst thing that can happen here?' "'The worst?' complained one of the said lords." I'll tell you the worst. The Babylonians will take the city and destroy it. We will lose everything. Exactly, crooned the priest. And what will the king of Babylon do? What the Babylonians always do. You and all the leading citizens will be carried off into captivity. And what will happen to your slaves then? Do you think that your new Babylonian masters will let you keep them? Not at all. They will all be left behind to fend for themselves. And may Yahweh help them if they don't have us to take care of them, interjected Ismael. So, continued Zephaniah, if the very worst happens, what will you have given up by releasing your slaves? Nothing. All right, said the king. But we didn't rebel against Babylon to lose, did we? We want to know what happens when we win. Do you really want us to give up our slaves then? All right, my king, of course we're going to win. It is the will of Yahweh, soothed the priest. But such a victory will only come at great cost. Many will die. If you release your slaves, they will fight on the walls and they will die, sadly. But I dare say to you, my lords... Better them than you and me. And at the end of it all, when the dust settles, even if we win, this city will be a mess. There will be no food, no supplies, no nothing except... Well, don't think my fellow priests and I haven't noticed the food that you lords have squirreled away... ...in your secret stores. So, if... I mean, when we win... What do you think will happen to the slaves that you do release? They will all be starving in the streets... ...with no one to feed them but you. How long do you think that it will take... ...for the poor fools to fall into debt again... ...to be unable to pay... My friends, I can almost guarantee you that you will have your slaves back and soon, maybe even before spring. And so it was settled. In order to address any lingering doubts that he knew the slaves would have about the nobles actually intending to go through with it, Zephaniah arranged for a grand public ceremony. It was a covenanting sacrifice, according to the most ancient traditions. The people were all gathered in the court of the temple to watch. Everyone was there. Even Jeremiah had been brought from the court of the guards to stand as a witness, though he had been warned many times that if he so much as spoke a word, he would be struck down. Following the prayers and the songs, the animals were slaughtered. There was a heifer, a female goat, and a ram, all three years old, as well as a turtle dove and a young pigeon. They were among the few healthy animals left in the city. Before the sacrifice, the priests came and cut the animals in half, placing one half on one side of the court opposite the other half. The birds they did not cut in two but placed one opposite the other. And then the nobles came together with the king, and they swore that they would release their slaves, and not even hold their debts against them. And all the people watched as they processed between the pieces of meat that were buzzing with flies, and they declared that Yahweh might do to them what had been done to these carcasses if they failed to keep his covenant." The vows and the elaborate display worked. When the king turned and addressed the assembled people of Jerusalem, he declared that they were all free. This was met with a deafening cheer. It was all that the slaves wanted. They knew that the situation was desperate. They understood well enough that the city might not survive. All they wanted was the chance to stand as free men of Israel in defense of what was left of their nation. Family by family and clan by clan, they stepped forward and they promised that they would stand on the walls, that they would hold the spears, and they would die before they allowed the Babylonians to take their homes. A week later, Ismael, son of Nethaniah, rose early. Something had troubled him as he lay in his comfortable bed. Something had changed, but he didn't know what it was. He went out of his house and walked to the southern gate of the city. The morning was so quiet, and as he climbed up onto the walls and looked down into the valley, he finally understood what had happened. The Babylonian army was gone. It had obviously been an orderly withdrawal. They had rolled up their tents and taken all of their animals. Only their garbage pits and a few smoldering fires remained on the empty ground. Nobody knows why the Babylonians abandoned the siege. But the fact of the matter is that they were carrying out a multi-pronged invasion of a very large territory. It seems reasonable to assume that the army had been hard pressed on some other front, and so the squadrons that had been encamped around Jerusalem had been desperately needed elsewhere for relief or to supply fresh troops. All of this seems reasonable to assume, in hindsight. But of course none of it crossed Ismael's mind as he looked out over the remains of the Babylonian camp. He let out a great whoop, and immediately ran back into the heart of the city. They were saved, Yahweh had embraced the justice of their cause, the Babylonians were gone. There were no announcements of official royal policy. There were no revisions of the law of Moses announced from the temple. It just happened. Now that the oppressive threat of the Babylonian army had disappeared, seemingly for good, the nobles were giddy in their relief. The poor of the city were also relieved, of course, but they, in their joy, foolishly abandoned the weapons that they had been given leaving them on the walls. The defenseless men were soon surrounded by the calculating nobles and found themselves pressed back into slavery in short order. In the chaos that ensued, every soldier and militia member abandoned his post, some to begin celebrating and reveling, while others began to riot in the streets, protesting the re-enslavement of the poor. This was true even in the high-security court of the guard. And so it was that late in the afternoon, Jeremiah, the king's least favorite person, looked around and suddenly realized that there was nobody guarding him anymore. He got up, walked through the gate, and ascended to the courtyard of the great temple. The place was crowded with people who had taken refuge from the chaos of the streets. And so when Jeremiah began to speak, he quickly gathered a crowd. When Yahweh set your ancestors free from slavery in Egypt, do you think that was only so that his children could take new masters and serve them? No. It is the will of your God that you serve Yahweh and Yahweh alone. You are not meant to be slaves to anyone else. And that is why Moses taught in the law that there must be a periodic release of slaves. But this law your masters ignored for many years. They did not want to let you go. And then, finally, just weeks ago, they repented and did what is right in the sight of Yahweh. They set you free and made a covenant with you. But now they have turned their backs on that covenant and on you. And have made you slaves again at this Jeremiah turned and spoke to the nobles who were gathered nearer to the sanctuary his voice rose to a mighty shout that carried far among the crowd that was now completely silent therefore this is the word of Yahweh you have not obeyed me by granting a release to your neighbors and your friends I am going to grant a release to you, says Yahweh, a release to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and those who transgress my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make like the calf when they cut it in two and pass between its parts." on the day when Jeremiah spoke in the temple. The king and the nobles didn't care. They had won. They had their slaves back. The mad prophet could say whatever he wanted. He couldn't take their victory away. Things were a little bit different only weeks later, when the army of Babylon once again appeared before the gates of the city. There was no more explanation for why they had reappeared than there had been for why they had left in the first place. But when Ismael looked out over the walls that morning, he finally knew that Jeremiah was right. He knew that he was doomed and the city with him. The nobles didn't even try. They knew very well that whatever they promised their slaves now, nobody would believe them. Nothing that they could say or do could possibly make the poor of the city fight to protect them and their property. The Prophet had spoken the word of God. The city was doomed. The story of the aborted release of the slaves during the siege of Jerusalem is so filled with stupidity and short-sightedness that it seems, well, entirely realistic. There were indeed ancient laws practiced not only by the ancient people of Israel, but by many other surrounding nations that required the periodic release of people who were enslaved because of their debts. That slavery was very common throughout the region, and a practice that was very much appreciated by the wealthy and privileged, but in times of crisis or danger, it became a problem. Military defense at that time, in almost every nation, was dependent on the services of free landholders. Only they could be relied upon to fight, because only they had a stake in victory. When bad economic times led to large slave populations, the entire nation became very vulnerable. General release from captivity and cancellation of debt was a mechanism that was used to replenish the pool of potential fighters. This common policy option took on a different meaning in ancient Israel, however, where it became a sacred requirement and was included in the revered law of Moses. This made it not simply wise military policy, but gave it a divine mandate. It is not surprising that the nobility of Jerusalem, when faced with a powerful military threat, should have instituted a general release of their slaves. It is foolish, but somehow not very surprising, that they should have gone back on that covenant when they saw the immediate threat of a foreign army disappear. Jeremiah's diatribe against the wealthy people of Jerusalem is a perfect example of the power of prophetic speech in ancient Israel. Jeremiah speaks the word of the Lord, an ancient formula for inspired speech but his prophecy is entirely practical given the circumstance Jeremiah does not need access to some heavenly voice in order to be able to predict with complete accuracy that the actions of the nobility will lead to disaster I believe that Jeremiah's example should also embolden us to speak the word of the Lord to leaders and other powerful people who use their positions to enrich themselves at the expense of the poor in society. Such policies will always, sooner or later, lead to social chaos and likely also to disaster. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please come back for a new episode at the end of next month, There may also be a special episode in the interim, so keep an eye on the feed. Please tell other people about this podcast and rate and review this episode on iTunes or some other platform to help other people find it. The theme music for the podcast is Ah Da," and the mood music for this episode, fittingly, is Oppressive Gloom. The music is by Kevin MacLeod, and is licensed under the Creative Commons, and you will find links to it in the show notes. Send your requests, comments, and questions to Retelling the Bible on Twitter or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.